Greetings from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. Good afternoon, I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, malaria, Alaska, and punishment. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor David Buss, who will discuss the evolution of evil. All this, plus the Grokotron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming up right here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. So have you ever thought which animal is most responsible for people dying? It snuck up on me. It's the animal fact of the week, isn't yes. it? Yes. Um, I would guess humans. Okay, well, besides <laughs> humans, it, it turns out mosquitoes are the only non-human animals or bugs which are responsible for people dying each year. Okay. Particularly since they spread diseases and other nasty things. And so there's actually a very interesting uh, controversy going on with the WHO right now. They're actually advocating the use of DDT for controlling malaria-carrying mosquitoes in countries like those in Africa, where there's been a resurgence of mosquitoes and malaria. It's supposedly one of the most effective chemicals for doing it, and they're saying it's actually safe to apply it indoors. Really? Yes. Considering how terrible malaria is, you know, this may be their only hope, at least for the, the short term. Yeah. The, but there are many problems with DDT. Um, I think it's been shown that it actually accelerates development of Parkinson's disease and causes a stunted growth in children. Hmm. The trade-offs are... Significant. Significant. Well, hopefully they can come up with a different chemical that doesn't have quite as deleterious effects. Yeah. But uh, this is an issue that's still raging, and the WHO is in the middle of it. Well, uh, I guess the story goes very well with that. It turns out that a lot of researchers now have figured out a way of using modified version of heparin to treat malaria. Heparin? Isn't that from the liver? Yes, it's actually a protein, I believe, which acts as something of an anticoagulant. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, very useful in malaria, which when the parasite Plasmodium falciparum infects cells, mm -hmm. it causes them to stick together and clump to the vessels. Right. And as a result, that inhibits blood flow, causes all the anemia, etc. People had used heparin in the past to treat this condition, right? but the problem being that it would cause, of course, severe bleeding as well. Cause oh, I see. But uh, now research led by Mark Walgren and his team at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm have shown that if you treat heparin with periodate, it actually destroys anticoagulant activity but retains the malaria-fighting properties. So you'll get all the benefits without the side effects. Wow, pretty cool. Of course it is. I mean, who wouldn't like to stop malaria in its tracks? DDT works, right? Yeah, I guess except for the DDT <laughs> folks. But anyway, very cool stuff. It was published in a recent edition of PLOS Pathogen. It looks like there's more evidence for climate change. The evidence keeps piling up, and hopefully this is evidence that climate change is improving. Not quite. Well, unless you think Alaska getting greener is a good sign. I like Alaska. <laughs> so apparently in the last 50 years, 10,000 of Alaska's lakes have either completely dried up or become negligible due to uh, changes in the weather patterns. And we've also seen a lot more uh, vegetation as a result of this. 
many places that were once glaciers now covered with uh, forest. But scientists are worried that this could be indicative of something uh, even greater in the long run. It looks like the temperature in general has gone up for the last several decades consistently. Yeah, well, I think the evidence is pretty clear at this point that that's occurring. Right. Are there a lot of settlements around these lakes, or was this just an indication of the ecological impacts of global warming? It's just more of an <clears throat> indication, but, you know, lakes disappearing is, is a pretty big deal, I guess. So anyways, this was prominently featured in a recent edition of the Journal of Geophysical Research. All right, and finally, Frank, do you play fair? Well, as they say, you shouldn't take unfair advantage of others, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not, I think. So do you then punish those who are unfair to you? Usually I'm too apathetic to do anything. <laughs> so it turns out that researchers have identified a brain region that is apparently very important in our desire to punish unfair behavior. Must be the punisher region, huh? Yeah. The, uh, so this was work done by Daria Noch and Ernst Fair at the University of Zurich. And they studied people playing a very standard game in, I guess, economics called the ultimatum game, in which you have two people and one has to give some money to the other. But if the person feels like the amount that was shared was unfair, then they can choose to refuse the amount of money that was given and then both people won't get anything. Wow. So it's essentially in the interest of the person giving to actually make sure that he's giving a fair amount. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that if you stimulate a part of the brain using magnetic stimulation, mm -hmm. part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, people then become much more likely to decline unfair offers and try and punish that behavior. It sort of extends previous thoughts on what this area might be doing and just shows that you can also manipulate people into declining unfair behavior. So I guess this is why the Sith got revenge on the Jedi, huh? Well, they're trying to bring balance to the Force, which of I course. think was the... Black thing. and white, right? In the end, they did, right? There's just two Sith and two Jedi at the end. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's balance. <laughs> All right, and this is very interesting work. and In fact, it was published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show you're listening to. Coming up in just a few minutes, Professor David Buss will join us to discuss the evolution of evil. So stay tuned.
Brock's Science Show. Well, the problem of evil in society has plagued philosophers for centuries. What is the root of evil, and how do we reconcile our notions of evil with our biological nature? Well, join us today on the Grok Science Show to discuss this issue is Professor David Buss. Professor Buss is a full professor of psychology at the University of Texas and currently head of the Individual Differences and Evolutionary Psychology area. His research has appeared in numerous journal articles and books, and he joins us today to discuss the evolution of evil. Dr. Buss, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, glad to be here. You've written a very fascinating article talking about evolution of evil. I'm, I'm curious if maybe first you can describe what is the field of evolutionary psychology? Sure. Basically, the field of evolutionary psychology is simply looking at the human mind, our, evol- our psychological mechanisms, through the lens of modern evolutionary theory. Basically, it says that evolutionary processes are the key processes that sculpted the mechanisms of the human mind and that these mechanisms have evolved basically to enable us to survive, to mate successfully, to reproduce, and to help other individuals who carry copies of our genes, that is, genetic relatives. I see. And so how does this then relate to a negative type of behavior such as jealousy, homicide, and stalking are among the ones that you study? Uh, basically, the process of evolution by selection is an, an inherently competitive process, and what that means is that one person's gain is often another person's loss. And so if you just consider the mating game, for example, if you have one desirable individual and two others are competing to mate with that individual, then one person's success is another person's failure. And that's basically the way that evolution by selection operates, is it operates by differential reproductive success. And what that means is that there are two basic strategies for getting ahead in the evolutionary game. One is to do things that enhance your access to reproductively relevant resources. Uh, the other is to inflict costs on those rivals who are in direct competition with you. Now those costs that you can inflict could be things like mild costs like reputational damage, verbal slurs and so forth, could be physical violence, and they could even be killing them killing the competition turns out, unfortunately for us, turns out to be a, a very effective way of getting your genes into the next generation. So is this a method then for uh, defining evil then in biological sense? Uh, yes, I think it is. At, at a rough approximation, how I define evil and how I think people intuitively define evil is those who inflict a massive evolutionary fitness cost on us, our family, and our allies. Uh, no one summarized these fitness costs better than Genghis Khan, the feared emperor and conqueror, and he had this wonderful quote that kind of captures this. He said, the greatest pleasure is to vanquish your enemies, to catch them, to chase them before you, to rob them of their wealth, to see their near and dear bathed in tears, to ride their horses, and sleep on the bellies of their wives and daughters. Basically, Genghis Khan summed up what we view as evil, those who inflict these evolutionary fitness costs on us and our kin, we, we view them as evil. And there's obviously another branch of evolutionary um, psychology, in particular a lot of people looking at the evolution of altruism. How do both of these type of behaviors then balance each other out in the long run? Well, I think that we have evolved psychological mechanisms for both, for cooperation, for altruism, for kindness, as well as for inflicting costs on our enemies and on our rivals. Uh, which particular mechanisms get activated, are, are that's highly dependent on circumstance. 
But it's important to keep in mind that if we look at who the uh, acts of altruism are directed toward, they're directed toward members of our group, members of our family, genetic relatives. Uh, these are individuals who are wildly the recipients of altruistic acts. We tend, although it happens occasionally, we tend not to be wildly altruistic toward total strangers, and we're certainly not altruistic toward our rivals. One other facet of this interesting mix that humans have of both cost-inflicting and altruistic bestowing adaptations is that sometimes we cooperate and are altruistic toward members of our in-group in the service of inflicting costs on those in the out-group. So the prime example is something like tribal warfare, where you have intense levels of cooperation and altruism within the group, yet extreme violence and warfare and even genocide toward members of the out-group. And so these mechanisms, uh, cooperative mechanisms, and homicidal mechanisms are not really incompatible at all. In some cases, one is in the service of the other. In some sense, how much then of our behavior in moral sense then is biologically determined? How much then can we uh, ascribe to um, a moral type behavior? Well, that's a complicated question, but I think that what we regard as moral is highly dependent on our perspective. Uh, and the example I use is that from a terrorist perspective, such as, let's say, Osama bin Laden, he said something like this, the ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do. Now, so this kind of view, if you're an American and the potential victim of terrorist activity, this is certainly an immoral act, it's an evil act, but from the terrorist perspective, it's actually a moral act and a responsibility. And so the perspective or of morality is extremely critical. And what research has found, what, what psychological research has found, is that in-group versus out-group often identifies what is viewed as moral. That is, it's immoral, for example, to kill a member of your in-group, but it is not immoral to kill a member of the out-group. And so I think we have to look at the evolved psychological mechanisms that underlie what we label as moral actions. How then uh, do we uh, take this biological view of evil and implement it in our laws and the implementation of what we view as uh, right and wrong? Yes, fascinating question. I think that one way to approach that is that laws are designed to prevent people from doing things that they would otherwise do if those laws didn't exist. And so, for example, it's not a trivial fact that everywhere where there are written laws, there are laws to prevent killing, laws to prevent stealing, laws to prevent things like rape. Killing, stealing, and rape, these are things that inflict massive evolutionary fitness costs on their victims and the fact that we can create laws to prevent people from doing these things is a kind of a reflection of human nature and a reflection of the fact that people are inclined to do those things at least under some circumstances if there aren't laws to prevent them from doing so. I think that the key to designing laws in fact and to designing effective preventative strategies and in essence keeping human nature in some kind of check and harness is a deep understanding of our evolved psychology and the fact that we have evolved psychological mechanisms that are designed to inflict these massive costs on other individuals. So the more we understand those evolved mechanisms and the more we understand the circumstances that trigger their activation, the better we will be able to design laws and policies to prevent their activation. 
it's kind of like we have callus producing mechanisms to prevent that create calluses when we experience repeated friction to our skin that knowledge enables us to design environments that are relatively friction free and so just because some, we have an evolved mechanism for something doesn't mean that we're doomed to act on it we can design environments to prevent the activation of those so-called evil evolved psychological mechanisms so this becomes kind of a, a bit of a slippery slope at some point because obviously there are pathological conditions in which individuals' ability to check these type of behaviors is limited. Or at what point then do we give uh, such people a pass on their actions? Yeah, well, that is a good question, and it's a very tricky question. Um, you know, my personal view is that we have to hold individuals responsible for their actions, period, because that policy of holding individuals responsible for their actions acts as an environmental input that at least lowers the likelihood of individuals acting on their more aggressive or destructive impulses. Are there individuals or are there social conditions that, that tend to produce extreme versions of these kinds of actions? Sure, there are. And in fact, there's a subgroup of individuals called psychopaths, or some people call them sociopaths, who seem to be even genetically predisposed to committing these kinds of atrocities. You know, what do we do with those kinds of individuals? These are difficult questions, but again, I'll go back to the key point that knowledge of our evolved psychology and the conditions that trigger the activation of these evolved mechanisms, that's the key to preventing or lowering the incidence of these atrocious acts. Uh, I'm curious, how much is known actually of the uh, neural mechanisms underlying these type of behaviors? Uh, we're, the whole field is at the very beginning of understanding the neural mechanisms underlying these behaviors. You know, we have increasingly sophisticated devices such as functional magnetic resonance imaging, and I expect the next decade to reveal a lot more. But at this point, we're at the stage of we have a little bit of knowledge and a lot of technology. <laughs> Uh, well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of work uh, left to be done. I'm curious if there's any final words you'd like to add on this subject. Well, I think you're right. There is a lot of work to be done. And the final words I would say is that I think we have to look into the mirror and recognize that all of us, all humans, have the capacity for evil. That is, we all have these evolved destructive mechanisms that can be activated under some circumstances. It's not just a limited group of abnormal individuals who perpetrate these atrocities. So I think we have to understand human nature for both its good sides and its evil sides. Indeed, indeed. Well, it is certainly a very fascinating uh, subject, and uh, Dr. Buss, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It was great uh, talking to you. And you were just listening to Professor David Buss discussing the evolution of evil. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned.
Yes, well, welcome back to reality. It's Slaughter Botfast with the answer to life, the universe, and everything. 42. And Forrest with this week's question of the week. Down here in the south, it's always sunny, but once in a while, we got them snowflakes falling down because it gets a little chilly. But can two snowflakes ever be the same? If you know or think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might see some pretty stamps. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music